Hello there, and welcome to the All Day Digital Podcast, where we talk to industry executives and thought leaders to get their perspective on a wide range of factors shaping the communications industry. This podcast is brought to you by CoBank's Knowledge Exchange Group, and I am your host, Jeff Johnston. On today's episode, we get to hear from Frank Lowthen, Managing Director, Equity Research at Raymond James, to get his perspective on fixed wireless and LEO satellites as communication network solutions in rural America. In many parts of rural America, building fiber to the home networks is not economically feasible. Instead, lower cost wireless networks are emerging as a solution to this problem. But not all wireless networks are the same, and it's important to understand the nuances about what makes one a better solution than the other. Frank has been advising investors in the communications industry for over 20 years, and as such, has a deep understanding of the technologies and business models needed to make them succeed. So, without any further ado, pitter-patter, let's hear what Frank has to say. Frank, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here today. Hey, great. Thanks, Jeff. Really appreciate it. Uh, glad to be here. Hey, I understand we got to do some disclosures off the bat, so let's kind of get that out of the way. Yeah, absolutely. Let's make the lawyers happy here. So I do not own any shares of any of the stocks, any of the companies that we will be covering or we'll be discussing here today. Uh, Raymond James may have investment banking or other business relationships with those companies. And if you want some additional information on that, it will be available, uh, be made available to you. Um, so with that, uh, we can we can jump right into it where, wherever you want to start. Great, great. Excellent. So I'd love to talk about satellite internet off the bat because that's kind of generating a lot of buzz right now. So as I understand it, we've got geo satellites, which are satellites that are really, really high above the Earth's surface. And then we've got this sort of new concept of LEO satellites that orbit the Earth much closer to its surface. And and it seems like those are the ones that are generating a lot of buzz in terms of, hey, this is going to be a great solution to bridge the digital divide and connect the people who aren't connected and so on and so forth. So kind of just love to get your thoughts high level on on uh, you know anything about that and why you think it's generating such a buzz. Yeah, exactly. So so satellite internet is is really interesting because in theory it should be able to fill in all the spots, um, especially in rural areas, hard to reach areas. The problem that satellite has, let's start first with what's called the, the geostationary satellite, and then we'll move into the low Earth orbit of the LEO satellite. Geostationary, if you put in a satellite roughly 26,500 miles above the equator, give or take a few feet, uh, it stays in orbit in one place. And so this, if you, you were to stand on the beach down in Texas, you, you know, up, uh, staring straight up there, there's a whole bunch of satellites. And that's where your you know, direct TV and DISH and XM satellite and a bunch of others will stay there because it can just constantly have a broadcast to you know, to North and South America from that one place. And, and there's, you know, there's other orbital slots around the globe for similar things, but you get the point. So the problem is it's still 26,500 miles there and 26,500 miles back. And so there is a delay. So when you have to send a signal up there and then all the way back, uh, it, it does things don't move quite as quickly. The other issue it's got is there's a, so only so much capacity on those satellites. Uh, so they kind of price it. They do the economic model where you price it to, you know, hey, how, many can we, how much capacity we have? Well, we price it to kind of sell all that we have, but there's a limited amount. Um, and then at that price point, of course, there's less demand, right? It's not like it's nine ninety nine a month. It's generally seventy nine hundred, hundred, you know, over a hundred dollars a month. Um, 
Again, it's effective for certain applications. If you're running a business, if you're using your card swipers at a convenience store or you're updating data overnight, things like that, um, it does work, but it's not great. So the LEO satellites are called low Earth orbit satellites, and these are much, they're much smaller. Um, they cost less. Uh, think of something the size of a washing machine that's spinning around the Earth anywhere. They can be lower, but let's call it 300 to 500 miles above the Earth. And they create kind of a mesh. So they have to be a little bit more technologically sophisticated um, because they're con because you have to and you have to put a, a whole bunch of them up. I don't have the exact numbers off the top of my head, but in the hundreds to thousands that you would put up so that you constantly and they're moving very quickly. Right. Because in low Earth orbit, um, uh, they are they're they're moving very, very quickly. And so. So, so one satellite goes by and then and you have the signal and then it has to be able to make the handoff and jump to the next one, the next one, the next one. So you constantly get a signal, um, but you do have to put a whole bunch of satellites up um, to, to get there. But you're only going 300 to 500 miles up. Latency is far better. Throughput is far better. Um, these different bands to get you know, to get the, the, get the signals. So in this case, you can definitely do north of 100 megs a second for broadband. In theory, you know, they claim they can get up to a gig, but, you know, a two or 300 megs a second um, on this would be would be far superior um, to what you what you'd be getting from uh, from one of the the uh, geostationary satellites or from DSL or if you have nothing else available. Right. And Leo also has another there's another advantage. Um, one thing I forgot failed to mention the, the geostationary satellites have as, as you get into farther northern north latitudes. Uh, you, you, there are places where they it can't see the satellite. If you're on the north side of the mountain, uh, you can you can't see this, and literally you don't have a line of sight from your satellite up to the equator. You can't see it. And if you've ever been up to Alaska, uh, far north in Canada, and so forth, look at the satellite dishes on the houses. And this you may not have noticed this, but it'll jump out at you now. They're almost vertical. Hmm. Instead of staring on kind of at a 45 degree angle looking at the sky, they're almost vertical because they got to see all the way around the curvature of the Earth. And there's huge swaths of Alaska and, and Hawaii and places that didn't have any, you know, never could get DISH or Direct TV or other satellite. So LEO satellites solve that problem, too, because you put a mesh network up and it's not just from the equator. It's it's more it's more uh, geographically centered around the areas that you're you're trying to cover. That's an awesome overview. Um, very helpful. So. Okay, with that, let's. So, I guess the focus we're going to be uh, talking about here are Leo satellites, and I guess I'd love Frank to get your thoughts on just um, how how viable are these uh, Leo satellite constellations, um, Starlink, and maybe Pro uh, Project Kuiper down the road from Amazon. I mean, how viable do you think those are as a sustainable internet service provider? Yeah. So, from a technological standpoint, absolutely viable. This will work. This gets a great solution. Uh, it solves a lot of these problems. It works in a lot of, in a lot of these places. So from a technological standpoint, I have no problem with that. Starlink, I won't put anything past Elon Musk being able to su succeed with something. Uh, so it absolutely can can succeed. The problem that it's got is there's some there's some there's other barriers besides if you've solved the technological barrier and you've got and you've got the capital to put up and I'll, I'll come back to the 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 government sub the RDOF funding and so forth but the biggest problem they've got is what I call the three I used, usually call it the three hundred dollar problem when you talk about broadband in in some in um, rural and 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 uh, lower income areas but in this case it's a five hundred ninety dollar problem which is the upfront. Uh, what's called uh, uh, customer premise equipment or CPE, you have to spend $500 just to get the, the, a fairly sophisticated device 
to re- get receive the signal for Starlink. And actually, I signed up to be a test a tester to get it when it's available in my latitude. Uh, and I've already gotten the email saying that my five hundred dollars is going to be now five hundred ninety dollars because of inflation and, and, and supply chain stuff and so forth. So. You're talking about someone in a, a remote area that probably probably lower income or on a fixed income, and they got to come up with $590. Now, that's down from $2,500 three years ago, um, and maybe it can come down more, and maybe they could subsidize or they could finance it. But then the cost of the service is $79 or $89 a month. It's, it's it, but it, and I'm not sure if that's the exact quote, but the point is it's a lot more expensive than DSL or any kind of cable or fiber or anything else like that. And so I think that the problem that you've got with these LEO satellites is that you, you, you definitely have to have a, a sophisticated piece of equipment at the customer site. It may or may not be that simple to set up. So this is something that has to have a moving part that is tracking the set, these other satellites that got to be put in the right place and so forth. Got to make sure that gets set up. That could be a, cha- that could be a challenge. But assuming you get around that, uh, there's, it's, just a, it's a very costly upfront and then costly monthly service. You know, if you're running a business, it's probably no big deal. But for the average consumer, I think it's really tough. You know, one of the things been talked about is some wholesale communications because the the latency between the satellites is almost nothing. Uh, there's some idea that you could get high frequency trading or other folks where latency is very very valuable to them, and they could they could use the jumps between the satellites and would pay a lot of money for that. That could help maybe subsidize it, maybe get the cost down uh, in the future. And so then we'll see. Um, I think, you know, and then Project Cooper, another, again, another source of revenue. Hey, what if that, if, if they use that as, as a way to, what if they were to expand their prime business, a whole nother group of, of customers that don't have internet. And so they can't get on Amazon prime. So what, what does boosting your prime, uh, subscribership by X percent get you to be able to subsidize those costs? What does it help them on their communication cost overall that they could use that they could suddenly put on their own network? The only ch- the only question I have, and I'll I'll go on record saying I I think Amazon will pull this, even though they you know they don't seem to care what things cost. They've never really successfully run networks. Uh, Google similarly, they all like they all think that network operators are these kind of dumb pipes and that they can do this until they actually try, and it's really difficult. As a lot of folks listening to this that are operators understand, I think it's a great solution for that last five percent. It's a solution for a certain percentage of, of folks in these more remote areas, uh, that, or if you just want to maybe want a choice. But I think ultimately the, the, it's, it's cost prohibitive uh, for a significant number of the target, a significant percentage of the target audience, and that's just going to make it really challenging. Then I guess the question becomes, with that small market, is this a sustainable business model for, for Starlink to be able to, to continually run this network and provide this service? I guess that remains a question, too. That's tough for me to say. Again, there's wholesale opportunities. There's other things they could do. So, hey, let's move on um, to fixed wireless, because that's getting a lot of attention, I think, lately, specifically as it relates to Verizon. Uh, and uh, and T-Mobile, they seem to be doing quite well executing on that on that plan. So, but I, I guess I'd I'd like to just focus more on fixed wireless from a rural perspective and kind of get your thoughts on on uh, the viability of unlicensed spectrum, whether it be CBRS or yeah, you know the six gigahertz channel. What what are your thoughts on that being a, a solution uh, to uh, to bridging the divide? Yeah, so let's, that's a, it's a great question. Let's talk about that a little bit. So. On the unlicensed side, um, I, I generally, if you wonder, hey, could something happen? If it's never happened before, I tend to think there's probably a reason for that. And if you look back in history, there's not been any su- examples of successful 
viable operators that that made their business on unlicensed spectrum. So I think that that works in fits and starts. It might work if you know some ranchers in the county decide to to you know put something together or or a small community. But for to be a broad based business on unlicensed spectrum, I think that's really really difficult because it's just hard to borrow, get funding and, and capital to deploy on something that you don't own the license for, that someone else can come and squat on it and take it from you, or they could change the rules. Not that the government would ever do that, but they could change the rules on it and suddenly decide they want to, they want to auction it off. So, so I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't look at, I, I think unlicensed spectrum is a, a rifle shot solution in some small parts, but it's not, not going to be anything kind of broad, broad base. Six gigahertz certainly has, has some promise, um, but the propagation characteristics are, are not as good as uh, for that mid band as, as some of the other other things. So, but when you look at fixed wireless, let's talk about there's two 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 different ways to, to think about it. Let's look at the T Mobile and what they're doing, and let's talk about what Verizon's doing. T Mobile is solving for a different problem, and I think T Mobile will be is currently and will be a good solution for a lot of more cost conscious and folks in in you know in in rural areas. Because what they're effectively doing is building out network where they never had it before. Now, their marketing is they've got the biggest 5G network. Okay, well, that may be true. Um, the, the technical truth of that is they're rolling out 5G on lower band spectrum. Um, and you know, five, 5G on lower band spectrum is better than 4G on lower band spectrum, but it's not like 5G on the millimeter wave that can do multiple gigabits and so forth and uh, that, you know, that Verizon's doing in inner cities. But they are rolling it out. And look, it's again, like I said before, 40, 50 megs on LTE, that's going to beat the pants off of a, a six meg DSL connection or where you have no connection. And, and, and T-Mobile and, AT, and to a lesser extent AT&T are pushing this out and they're going to take back share and get, take share in the mobile market where there's never really been competition. Uh, we, in our estimation, there's about 30% of the U.S. geography, maybe it's 20% of the population that's 60 to 80 percent dominated by Verizon for mobile handsets. And that's just because AT&T and, and T-Mobile don't work there. and They've never had network there. So at and, and, and then what's making and then to pull, pull this back together, what's making all of this work is on the 5G side for the first time in in wireless technology, you can spend a dollar of capital and get multiple revenue streams off of it. So that same antenna set that you put up with 5G, you have the ability to beam form it to a specific location or and run and run fixed wireless on the same infrastructure that you're building out for mobile. So as T-Mobile is building out their 5G network, they're being very smart about it, and they're uh, they're adding the, these capabilities. They're selling the fixed wireless. I've talked to many people that have used it; it works just fine. One guy I know switched his whole switched every device in his house over to it. Didn't tell the family, and nobody complained. So I guess that's the test when the kids don't uh, don't complain that Fortnite's not working or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And so on the rural side, I think that can absolutely be a viable option. Longer term, though, my view on fixed wireless is that it become it is going to be largely an enterprise product, and then uh, what I've called backup broadband. The whole time I've covered I've covered the sector. It's always been fascinating to me that the American consumer buys the fastest marketed speed. And so I can talk on blue in the face about how uh, a, a 20 meg or 50 meg DSL connection will do everything you want to do, but it doesn't matter. So fixed wireless, uh, even though, yeah, it can do, can it do two, 300 megs? And if you're in a, an urban area and you're 50 yards away from a small cell, can you get a gigabit or more on, on your wireless? It's sure. But ultimately, the terrestrial networks will always have a faster speed. So ultimately, what fixed wireless will be is it will be, what I, again, what I've dubbed backup broadband. 
when you're working from home and let's say you're sitting down to do this podcast, Jeff, and uh, you, your internet was down, what would you pay to, to have it turned back up immediately? Probably more than $25. And that's what Verizon will sell you a 300 meg fixed wireless access point, and, and we wouldn't know the difference. Maybe you're using one right now. We wouldn't know the difference. And so I think a lot of people see it as, hey, this is an insurance policy. I can take it with me when I go on the vacation. We go over to the relative's house, and their internet's terrible, so we can bring it with us there. You know, a lot of options. Yep. Then the other one where this will have a lot of success is on the corporate side. Yeah. So for folks in the corporate part of the business, uh, talk to your talk to your IT managers. What was their biggest headache when everybody was working remotely during the pandemic? Troubleshooting the customer's in-home uh, cable modem. Your IT department is troubleshooting these things, and it's not their job, right? So what what Verizon or AT and T or T Mobile would do is say, "Hey, buy this device thirty five dollars a month." And, you're, and tell your employees to plug into this, and they are on a, directly on a secured, encrypted Verizon network. Done. Your, your IT manager is going to hear security and encryption, and no more. And now we know exactly it's directly on the network. It's over. And so they'll sell to that. So I think that's where it ultimately shakes out. And for now, have, Verizon's having some success in urban areas um, where they're kind of target marketing and they're picking off the customers that really are mad at their local cable or phone company. I think that runs its course. And then fixed wireless is going to be sort of a, a niche product in some rural areas. It's going to be, and then it's going to be a, a separate category uh, going forward. And we'll hear less and less about it. The last piece will be what AT and T is going to do with it. They are they would very much like to use fixed wireless to retire a lot of their copper network for voice, and uh, and then provide some lower speed um, uh, broadband like T Mobile's doing in the areas where they are the incumbent ILEC in rural markets and so forth. They would like to use it for that. I think you'll see them use their fixed wireless technology in in that fashion. Gotcha. Well, that makes sense. Hey, let's talk about um, fixed wireless in the context of private networks, because as we've been looking at this, and it's still a sort of in uh, in its infancy, I think, at this point, but um, certainly getting a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it feels like a fixed wireless. We talked about licensed spectrum, but like a fixed wireless using unlicensed spectrum on a farm um, to be able to deploy precision ag applications mm-hmm. feels like a like a uh, like an elegant solution. I mean, some of the estimates I've heard, farmers are willing to pay between ten to thirty dollars per acre to have broadband coverage. So, if you have an eight thousand acre farm, you're willing to pay two hundred and forty thousand dollars to have broadband coverage on your farm. You could deploy a fixed wireless network, a private network for that farm, much much cheaper. So, I'm just curious, what what are your thoughts on on private networks, fixed wireless, unlicensed spectrum, that whole story there? Yeah, wow, that's a big number for. If they've got if farmers got two hundred fifty thousand, I'd recommend he builds his own cell tower on there, and and then he can get some revenue from that, and then he could do do a little <laughs> set something else private up. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's a lot of money. But no, no, you're you're absolutely right, and this is where five G can be kind of uh, and again another aspect of the enterprise side is on the industrial side, and it could be in a farming, it could be in a factory scenario, it could be um, you know in, in a, a warehouse scenario. Five G the the advantages that five G have over four G are really get down to latency and uh, and proximity. So what does that mean? Um, the reason that applications like Uber and Lyft exist were because of 4G. And they exist because with with LTE technology, it can get your location down to a, to a certain set of square meters. That way, the Uber guy knows to pull to your house, not your neighbor's house, or two blocks away and so forth. You couldn't do that. And, and, and having the real-time communication back and forth with the driver and so forth. You couldn't do that before LTE. 
with 5G, that gets even smaller. So now the latency is tremendously faster. And instead of square meters, you can tell pinpointing location down to square centimeters. So the example that I, I talk about a lot, and it would be, um, you know, you've got a, a, a machine going through a Walmart and it's cleaning the floors at night. It's a robot and it's also got a scanner and it can scan and it can tell, you know what, we're out of, we only got 12 things of Colgate toothpaste and we need 20 and we're good on, on packs of, uh, of, of diapers and six packs of Coke and we need these other things. It can, can get all of that precision. I can, you can envision the same thing in farming, like looking, you know, oh, how, where, you know, is the, is the tractor in this, in the right line? And the other thing, because of the latency, you can take a lot of cost out. Those sensors can be kind of dumb sensors. The cameras that can watch and, and see a manufacturing line and, and look for defects or can watch in a, in a farming situation and, and see, you know, have sensors and see that there's an issue with heat in a barn or wherever it is, you know, all those cameras can be really dumb because they don't have to, all the electronics can be central in, in one place back at, in, the, in the building of the farm. That allows you to put hundreds of cameras or thousands of cameras across all those acres in the farm all throughout the barn instead of, ah, we can only afford one or two or, or this sort of thing. This has been great, Frank. Um, we've covered a lot, so appreciate that. It's been very informative. Um, but before we wrap it up, just want to make sure we've covered all the sort of salient points from your end. So uh, anything else that I didn't ask or we didn't talk about that you think uh, is important to, uh, to mention? No, I think we've, we've hit all the topics. Again, I think this is really exciting. I think uh, uh, we're, we're you know, hitting a point where these broadband networks are being deployed at such a rate and with multiple different price points, and we can finally kind of solve a lot of this digital divide. And then I think really greatly improve people's lives, improve the communities, be able to drink, bring commerce back into, into, into these other markets and so forth. I really think as we, as we take all of the fiber that's being deployed, we take all of the government subsidies, fixed wireless, Leo satellite, the whole, it all comes down to one thing. You're expanding broadband out to, to people and to communities that it didn't have before. It gives them a lot of opportunities, economic opportunities. They don't have to leave home to work in a city. They can see more commerce. Uh, you can improve their, just improve everybody's lives. And I think it's extremely important for rural America. I'm glad that the, that the government and and the industry is behind this. And I think it's actually going to happen. And we fast forward and have this conversation in five years, we're looking at a dramatically different situation uh, for a lot of these areas, uh, economically, socially, et cetera. And I think it's a great thing to watch happen in America, much as we saw electrification 100 years ago. This is finally the, the piece parts are here to get broadband and those, all those and all of its benefits to the rest of the country. Great. Well, no, well said. Great summary. And uh, thank you, Frank, so much for uh, being on the podcast today. We really appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate you and, and CoBank um, and asking me to be on here. So I really appreciate it and look forward to uh, speaking with you again soon. A special thanks goes out to Frank for being on the podcast today. I know all this wireless talk can get kind of technical, especially when we start talking about different types of satellite technologies. My biggest takeaway from talking to Frank is that the promise of there being high-speed, reliable satellite internet anywhere on the planet might be a stretch. While this is technically possible, the business case to operate and service customers on a LEO satellite network seems to be fraught with a good bit of risk and uncertainty. Fixed wireless seems to have promise as a lower-cost option to serve the unserved. And it's my bet this will be the technology of choice for high-cost rural markets. Hey, thanks for joining us today. 
and watch out for the next episode of the All Day Digital Podcast. The information provided in this podcast is not intended to be investment, tax, or legal advice and should not be relied upon by listeners for such purposes. The information contained in this podcast has been compiled from what CoBank regards as reliable sources. However, CoBank does not make any representation or warranty regarding the content and disclaims any responsibility for the information materials, third-party opinions, and data included in this podcast. In no event will CoBank be liable for any decision made or actions taken by any person or persons relying on the information contained in this podcast.